Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. In this season five finale episode of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska. When that sucker comes up, it's huge. I almost fainted and all mom says is I told you, I told you. One woman learns an important lesson, never try to give payback to your mother. And another woman follows her mom to Alaska from California, only to find out her mother has had a major change of lifestyle. And up comes my mom, and I look, and she has this big stomach. And then next, standing next to her is a man all dressed in leather. Uh, leather pants, leather shirt, headband, beard. And I'm like, oh my God, Daniel Boone? My Alaskan mother. Up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. Alaskan moms, like most moms actually, are nothing to be trifled with. One minute they're getting you ready for school, and the next they're gutting a moose. In today's episode, we have two stories of women who typify what it means to be an Alaskan mom. First off, we have this story from Laverne Hawkinson, who thought, because she was a grown woman and her mom was in her 70s, that she could finally teach her a lesson. She learned otherwise. She shared this story at our fall 2019 live event in Fairbanks. I was born and raised in the village of Old Harbor. Old Harbor is located on Kodiak Island. It's on the south end. The only way to get to the village is by boat or plane. The plane ride is about a half an hour, and the, a boat ride is about seven to eight hours. Uh, <laughs> when I was living there, there were about 450 people, so I was related to most everybody there. I had to, <laughs> I had to look for a husband elsewhere because <laughs> almost everybody in the village was my cousin or a best friend. The, uh, the good-looking guys were in Port Lions. I'm not going to say who I had a crush on. Some of you might know him. <laughs> so um, I haven't lived in Old Harbor in over 30 years, but I do go back to visit. And when I go back to visit, I like to spend time with my mom. And she is about 4'11". So when I go home, I feel pretty tall. <laughs> a lot of people are really short in home, at home. And um, Mom is the president of the BBC. If you haven't heard, it's not the British Broadcasting Corporation. It's Bingo, Banya, and Church. <laughs> My dad deemed her the president of BBC because she loves to go to bingo, and she loves to go to Banya, and she loves to go to church. If you go to bingo in Old Harbor, you're not going to get rich because the pots are about $10. And you can maybe win the winner take all of $60. In Fairbanks, it's like $100 and, and $1,000, so a big difference. We go to bingo to visit people and have fun and share stories. And then Banya is a steam bath. When I was growing up, we didn't have showers. We had steam baths. And we would go with, uh, the, the children would go with the women, then the men would go, and then the couples might go, not, not couples together, just a husband and a wife, that's it. Uh, <laughs> don't tell stories to people now. <laughs> In Kodiak, there's the Russian Orthodox Church, and whenever there's church, you can find mom there. 
She goes on Saturday, she goes on Sunday, she goes on Thursday when they have service for St. Herman, and she goes on holidays. There's a lot of holidays. And, and on Lent, she goes during Lent as well. I go back to visit every time that I can during the summer to see my mom. Um, I went back about 10 years ago to visit her. She was 72 years old. When I was visiting her, she said, hey, let's go halibut fishing. And my memories of halibut fishing were uh, with, with old people. Old people would go halibut fishing, just like old people in the parks feed the birds. <laughs> old, old people sat on the boat and they had like those, that twine and they would throw it out and then they would roll it in and then they, they get halibut. That was not for me. I was like, I don't want to go halibut fishing. But she convinced me to go and she said, we'll have tea, we'll have a, lo have a lot of fun. And so she convinced me and of course, we have to go to bed early because she's a half an hour early for everything. I think I, I was even early for this. <laughs> Probably the first one here and I got it from her. So um, we go to bed early, we get up early, and we go um, halibut fishing with Glenn. Glenn is, um, he's my sister's husband, and they live right next door, and they take care of my mom, he's amazing. And uh, we go over there in the morning after breakfast, and we see Glenn, he's getting the boat ready, and he has an 18-foot bay liner, and it's really nice, it's pretty fancy. So um, we follow him down, to the boat harbor, and in Old Harbor, there's only maybe a two-mile road. So we follow her, him down there, and he lets his boat out, and we get on the boat and we go out, and I get to sit in front because there's no kids competing for the front. <laughs> and I have wind blowing in my hair, and I'm smiling, oh, and it's a beautiful day. Normally in Kodiak, it rains a lot, and we are very fortunate to have a nice day. So we go out there and Glen's, we pass Sheep Island where we subsist for seagull eggs. We see Mouse Island where we picnic, it's really pretty. We pass a couple of people who are also halibut fishing and they're old too, because I'm old now. <laughs> so we go out and Glenn finds his spot and I'm not gonna tell you where it was. <laughs> so Glenn finds his spot, he gets his depth finder out and he looks for a great place to anchor, and he anchors up. And um, I thought I was going to get this twine thing, and I see him in the back, and he's preparing these rods with bait. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty fancy. So he gives one to my mom. She takes it, and he gives one to me, and I'm smiling. I like halibut fishing now. It's not so hard. And so... Mom catches a halibut, and I think her first one might have been 40 pounds, average halibut about this big. And then I might have caught one that was 20 pounds. We let a couple go because they were too small. And then we go back to the village, and we go to bingo. That was Wednesday night. And remember, that's a place where people gather and they talk, and mom's there, yeah, I got me a halibut. It was 40 pounds. And... Um, the thing is, she didn't tell people, is that when she caught the halibut, she would have Glenn reel it in. <laughs> I'm like, she's sitting there, she snags it, and that's about it, but Glenn's doing all the work. So I was like, okay, and we have fun in bingo, we see Wilmer, he's our caller, 
We see Stella, we see everybody at bingo, we smile. And then we go home, that was Wednesday, we go, to, we go home and um, the next day is church. So we go to church on Thursday night. We might have banyed afterwards. I think we banyed every day. And so um, Friday comes along and she's like, hey, you wanna go halibut fishing a Glen, with Glenn again? I was like, sure. So we go out and same thing. Oh my God, it was so pretty. I was so shocked. So we go out there and then Glenn's busy doing something and we're in the same spot and um, Glenn's busy. So he says, hey, mom caught a fish. Why don't you go get it? You reel it in. I was like, okay. So I'm struggling with her halibut and this one was like a 60 pounder. It's like, nice. And we go to bingo, it's Friday. Same thing happens. Mom says, I caught this halibut. And everybody's like, wow, that's awesome, Mary. It's like, wait a minute, we did all the work. So we go to church Saturday night, and I think we even bond it again. We go to church Sunday. And she said, hey, Glenn wants to take us out again. I'm like, okay, sure. But this time I see Glenn, I said, hey, Glenn, when we go out there, you got to make mom reel in the halibut. Because every time we go to bingo, she tells people that she caught this awesome halibut. I'm like, we're doing all the work, Glenn. She's getting all the credit. So we go out there, and Glenn, of course, hears what I say, and he's like, Arr. Because he jumps on mom because she's the president of the BBC. He does everything for her. So we go out again, and we're out there for about five or ten minutes. And I don't even have my reel yet. And mom says, I got one. And I'm like, are you kidding? We just got here. And she's looking at Glenn, hoping Glenn will come over here and take the rod. And I said, no. No, no, Glenn. She's going to go to bingo and she's going to tell everybody that she got this halibut. She has to do the work. She's 72 years old. <laughs> so she has a rod and she's over there and she's, she starts struggling and tried to pull it in. And she's like, it's heavy, it's heavy. And Glenn's trying to make his way and I said, no, no, no. And mom is struggling, and then she starts saying, it hurts, it hurts. And she's shaking, but I'm still like, no, no, mom, you have to do this. You're going to tell everybody at bingo that you caught this halibut. So finally, Glenn says, no, no, no. She looks like she's in pain. So he walks over there, and he takes the reel, and he's, he starts pulling, and he's like, oh my God, it's heavy. <laughs> and, and mom says, I told you, I told you. And, and Glenn is struggling and I'm over there watching over the side of the boat. Remember, it's like an 18 foot bay liner. I'm looking over there and oh my God, when that sucker comes up, it's huge. I almost fainted and all mom says, is I told you, I told you. <laughs> I've never seen a halibut so big. Not that I'm a professional halibut fisherwoman, 
So Glenn is, he, he tells me to go to the back and get his gun. So I get his gun and he's looking at the hook and he's like, it's barely in, it's barely in. So he gets the gun and he shoots and then he gets a rope and one of those like hooks and he hooks the halibut and then um, I have the hook and he just like slips it off like this. It was not barely even in there. And then he takes a rope and ties it in. And then he's trying to pull, so I have to go there and I have to help him pull. And then we have to look at my mom. <laughs> mom, can you help us? So the three of us are pulling and that halibut is fighting and fighting. And we finally get it on and it's flapping and we're silent. And mom said, I told you it was big. <laughs> so we start going home and we're, we're just smiles and happy. And we see David and his son. And we show them the halibut and they're all amazed. And mom is smiling. She's like, yes, I did it. <laughs> and then we see the sportsmen, you know, the guys coming in, the tourists, getting their halibut. And they're like, Wow, that's big. And we take it home and um, they try to weigh it, but the uh, scale for the, uh, the halibut is so small that the halibut is bent like this, the tail's up like this. It ended up being 72 inches and they figured it weighed about 230 pounds. <laughs> so, they asked me what I learned from my story. Listen to my mom. <laughs> Thank you. Laverne Hawkinson. He shared that story at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Making the transition from living in the lower 48 to life in Alaska is tricky in the best of circumstances. Tricky is a huge understatement when it comes to our next storyteller, though. Hadara Ben Israel had a way more jarring transition to life in Alaska when she was a little kid. I interviewed her about that experience at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. Some quick background information. Her name was Christy when she was young, and she changed it to Hadara later in life, as she will explain in the story. Here's Hadara Ben Israel. Okay, so the year was 1971. And um, I was from San I lived in San Jose, California with my dad and his wife and my two brothers and her four children. So we had the Brady Bunch going on. And then I heard in school, I was in second grade, I heard Christy, because I didn't come here as Hadara, I came here as Christy Horner. So anyways, I heard in school, Christy's going to Alaska. And I wasn't quite sure what to think about it, to be honest with you. I was like, I had gone through quite a bit already. My mom was from San Francisco, hate Ashbury. She burned her bra. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, she got a little dipped into things that every, a lot of people tried, and she did, and she had to get out of the city. My grandma bought some land in Delta, so when grandma bought land in Alaska, she came to Alaska. She hitchhiked. So then Christy hears, we're going to Alaska. And I'm like, Okay, and they start showing movies of chewing skins and igloos and... <laughs> but I still, to be honest with you, I don't remember cognitively really processing it. I was just kind of like, oh boy, here we go again. My mom. <laughs> right. And the circumstances was your, your parents had gotten divorced, your mom had won custody, and she basically sent for you and your two brothers to yep. come up to 
Alaska by yourselves. And the reason that you bring up the point that you were seven and three quarters years old is because your trips, right from the very beginning, you had to lie. I had to lie. <laughs> Why? Back in 71, you could only fly alone when you were eight. <laughs> so, and I, I happen to have two older brothers, but I was the, I'm a typical girl, and I was the reward, so I held the tickets. I do remember that. <laughs> and anyways, we arrive in the Fairbanks airport, and we get off the plane, and it's kind of a small, quiet, nothing airport, and uh, comes my mom, and I look, and she has this big stomach. And so I'm like, okay, but she's my mom. I missed her, cried for her every night, you know? And then next, standing next to her is a man all dressed in leather. Uh, leather pants, leather shirt, headband, beard. And I'm like, oh my God, Daniel Boone? <laughs> and so then we load up, we get in the old Rambler, and we start driving and driving and driving and driving. And to this kid, I'm like, oh my God, where are all the people? And we ended up in Delta Junction. And then we drove to the end of this dirt road and parked, and all of a sudden I looked through the woods, and it's all woodsy. There's a little cabin, and it's 12 feet by 16 feet, a moose skin and a kerosene light, and 32 dogs not chained up. And I just, I think my eyes got as big as saucers, and I just was in shock. And she had... And when you say moose skin, you mean moose skin door. Moose skin door. And when you first told me that, I thought, you mean you had a moose skin on the door. Oh, no, it was you, a moose skin It door. was, the door was just a moose skin. Yes. And this is from California... Yes. That morning. That morning. To this cabin <laughs> with a moose skin door. <laughs> yes, and a kerosene light, which and, we had quite a long time, and then we upgraded to propane. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. So no electricity. <laughs> yeah. And then um, another thing that boggles my mind was the bathroom situation. <laughs> there wasn't a bathroom. There wasn't an outhouse. It was just go find a tree. And I got to be honest Year with round. You, year round. Yeah. And I think we probably held it a lot. Anyways, in the, 12, <laughs> in the 12 by 16 foot cabin, there were six kids in there. And it really, really, I can tell you, you walk in the door and you have to kind of step up and duck down. Cause, <laughs> but the, the logs were big. I mean, this was a cabin, no bear is gonna take the corner off of this cabin. It was a nice peeled logs, you know? So we weren't looking at old peely yucky logs. We were looking at nice logs, um, but it was 12 by 16. <laughs> and so, um, you walk in, and right there to the right is a wheel spool that carries the wire cable that was our table. And we had a, like a shelf with leather straps that eventually got a TV from my grandma that we charged on the car battery. And you knew the TV was getting low because the TV screen would get small. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then right by there was a little pantry, and then a cubby, and above it was a loft with four mattresses, a double bed on the other side of the cubby, a little crib at the end of the bed, believe it or not, a rocker, a four-burner propane stove, and then a barrel cast iron stove, and two little windows. I used to ballerina through that little 12 by 16 foot space. And so I was there from eight years old to when I left home at 14. Well, in the summer, we lived in cars. That old Rambler became a broke-down bedroom for me. And so you, you, every night you'd go out to the car and curl up and sleep in a car? Yes. And mosquitoes were a pain, but we figured out about mosquitoes. Trust me, I know a lot of stuff about Alaska. All right. <laughs> Just, I have to say, when I first in school, I remember sitting in school and then looking out the window going, what are we doing in school at night? And they said, it's not night. It's three in the afternoon. 
And I think it was very close to that time when I noticed that we, you know, it just started getting dark. One day after school, you know, it's dusk and dark, and it's my 10-year-old brother, my 9-year-old brother, and me. And we're going down the road, and all of a sudden, I look up in the sign, and we can hear, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And I remember looking through the dark, and it's dusky, and we could see the black shadows. Our road was blocked by a whole herd of buffalo. Which happens very rarely in California. <laughs> and so I just remember being like, I, I think I kind of blinked out a little bit because I just grabbed my brother and I just remember the buffalo are the scariest looking things to me. They look, they still scare me even after being around them a lot. And um, I just grabbed my brother and there's such thing as a high road and a low road and the high road, he just, you know, it's more like a trail and then the regular road and he grabbed me and drug me around the side and I don't remember actually getting home. So I must have just like went into a zonk out. <laughs> <laughs> but the buffalo, we had many encounters. Delta used to be full of buffalo back in the 70s, and our fields would load up. My dad, I realized later, my stepdad, he used to put a pork hide over the generator just to call the bears into the yard so that he could just take care of them right away and not have to worry about them because he had honey hives and we had kids. And I learned later that's why he had the 32 dogs is because it was our alarm system. Mm. You never missed a beat when those dogs were around. And so he would put the pork hide, call the bear in, kill it. We'd be inside the cabin looking through that dinky little window with all the... And one time, one of the bears did get one of our dogs with one swipe and took her whole cheek off. And uh, her name was Heidi, and she lived, but she lost a cheek. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a story about a baby in a wheelbarrow, too, that... Tell us about the Well, my the mom baby was extremely creative and very literate and very, you know, we listened to Fantasia out there. We had Reader's Digest, Nancy Drew, and all that. We were very literate. But she also had this wild side. And she wanted to, this, she had a friend who was pregnant, and they were like, oh, let's birth it out here. And I'm like watching, you know, because in my day, kids were seen and not heard. Okay, so I'm always watching. <laughs> and we were in that little cabin, but my mother was always screaming and yelling about the big cabin. We had to get in that big cabin because we were so squished. And um, the big cabin never got finished. It always had this queen on the windows, and the basement was always falling in. But for the birth of the baby, um, we, the, she was in the big cabin. And there I am, standing at the end of the bed. I did not participate. I just remember the head crowning and then getting stuck. And then my mom getting a pair of scissors and saying somebody sterilize it, you know, with fire. And she sterilized it. And then the snip. And then the baby. And then they left the baby connected, put it on her tummy, wheeled in a wheelbarrow, put her in the wheelbarrow, wheeled her out to the car, and drove her to town. And the helicopter picked her up. <laughs> I'm not even going to comment. You went from a wheelbarrow to a helicopter. And Trust me, there's so many stories, it's hard. You can't tell them all right I'm now. trying to figure out how, like, medical insurance figured out what to charge for that. <laughs> Is there, like, a wheelbarrow thing? I don't know. But, <laughs> but after a while, as you sort of alluded to earlier, around your, your early teens, it started to, you started to have enough of this, right? What were some of the things that made you feel like, okay, this is not my scene, I need to move on? I went to seventh grade, and as soon as I got to seventh grade, I noticed that all the girls who had their hair curled would get all the attention. So I had to get a curling iron. <laughs> and so I said to my folks, I said, I really need a curling iron. And they grabbed me one. They plugged me into the generator. 
<laughs> well, and a mirror on the tree, these military mirrors with a cabinet, and hung it up, and so I'm out there before school, <laughs> and I'm like, I've got to get out of here, this is crazy, these guys are insane. And so I always say I got out of there because I didn't have a curling iron. And the fact, a little bit more truthful is it got a little dysfunctional. People, you know, too long in a 12 by 16 foot space will drive anybody crazy. And so it got a little dysfunctional and um, I ended up becoming a ward of the court. While I'm waiting for the girl's home, which I didn't want to go to, uh, this guy was auditioning for a band. He was older, he was 21, and I said, well, I can only sing with you for like two weeks because I got to go to a girl's home. <laughs> and I thought that was a long time, you know? And then he came back in like three days. He said, let me think about this. And he came back in three days and he said, I got an idea. No strings attached. You marry me and I'll be your guardian and you can sing in my band. <laughs> Who's my mother? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Woohoo! I jumped up and down at that one. And I still had to go to the girl's home and he followed me and we ran away for a year, and it was just all this stuff. And then the court signed me over to my mom when I was 16, and she signed me over to him, and I became part of a family that was half Jewish and half Christian, and eventually I hung out with the Jews so long that Christy just was like stopping me from getting involved. I mean, not that there was, it's just that Christianity, if you know much, there's a little, there's been some problems, Jewish people. <laughs> Jewish people haven't had the easiest time, so I say, hi, I'm Christy, and I'm going to be with you now. And they'd, and they'd be like, and they'd be very kind and everything. The nicest people I ever was with were the Jewish people. And, but that's me, you know. And so I, I went through a couple name changes, and the Israelis said, Hadara, stick with Hadara. <laughs> so I did. And you were married how long? 23 years. He turned out to be a really good guy. It was a really wild ride, but we got to do the band, we got to sing, and I had four kids and raised them all here with him. So my eclectic mother, you know, I, I can't imagine him seeing this story. I never would have imagined I'd be smiling about it. But you know, with all the stuff we had to go through, Alaska was so beautiful to get out in, and the trees, I'd always have a fort, you know, under something. We lived outside predominantly, and now I like to live outside, and I like to sleep in my car, and I have weird quirks. <laughs> Still like sleeping in your car, I huh? do, it's All like right. a traveling bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Hadara Ben Israel, everyone. Thank you so much. You shared those stories at our November 2019 Live Event Programs. Thanks for listening to the Season 5 My Alaskan Mother finale episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. This episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince, live storyteller audio recording by John Huff and Matt Hutter of Alaska Universal Productions, story consultation by Lori Neufeld. It's a Dark Winter Nights tradition to end each season with the Alaska Flag Song, so here it is, as performed by the Alaska Chamber Singers, led by conductor David Hagen.
Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.